Our text this morning is Matthew 15, verses 21 through 39. Please follow along. The topic, Jesus surprises everyone by referring to a Canaanite woman who has come to him for help as a dog. The title of our message, Be Aware of Dogs. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for bringing us to this place this morning. And I pray that if we don't have it, Lord, that you'd give us a sense right now that this is a divine appointment. You've brought us here so that you can speak to us, and this is the text that you're going to use to do it. May we, Lord, have ears to hear what the Spirit says to each of us individually and to our church collectively. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You may have noticed some of your Facebook or Twitter friends adding whosoever to their screen name either as a middle name or a last name. Anybody, anybody experience this besides me? All right, well, you're totally in the dark about this then, but it's a famous thing right now. It's very trendy if you're a Christian. There are whosoever bands and churches and websites and youth groups, and there is whosoever merchandise. It calls attention to the fact that you are a whosoever believeth in him who should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, you're just another one of those uh, from the mass of humanity that Jesus Christ died for and saved. Now, Jesus was preparing his disciples for their mission on earth after his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. They'd be taking the gospel to the Jews, of course, but also to non-Jews whom the Bible calls Gentiles. They'd be going to whosoevers. Now, whosoevers were not popular among Jews in the first century. Most Jews despised Gentiles, and they reneged on their Old Testament commission to bring the knowledge of God to them. Think Jonah, and you'll understand the usual Jewish mindset. The two episodes in our text prepare the disciples to minister to the Gentiles, serving to them as illustrations that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'll organize my thoughts around two points this morning. Number one, listen carefully to the whosoever's around you. And number two, look compassionately upon the whosoever's around you. Let's take a look first of all in verses 21 through 28 about our listening to them. Now, Jesus was being rejected by the leaders of the nation of Israel. It would set up a situation in which he would return to heaven without establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth that God had promised to Israel. The promise was not voided. Jesus will return a second time, be received by Israel as their Messiah, and the kingdom will be established. Jesus' disciples all Jews would be the first ones to be tasked with preaching the gospel between the two comings. They'd take the gospel to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. I uh, was uh, watching uh, the Bible. Remember, the, uh, it was a couple of years ago that they came out with that show on the History Channel, The Bible. Uh, and um, uh, I was watching that yesterday with my granddaughter. She wanted to watch it, and so that was cool. And I, re- I remembered how all of these Bible shows, whether it's the Bible or Jesus of Nazareth or any of them, uh, none of them portray characters as if they even remotely look Jewish. 
Uh, and, and we have an understanding, we've come to the understanding in our minds and in our hearts that Jesus was a blue-eyed Englishman uh, with a pretty thick accent. And, and, and now, you know, we're a little bit more astute, and we, we realize Jesus was Jewish, and so were his disciples. But from a cultural standpoint, we don't think about it too much, and that's why we sometimes miss what the Bible is, is saying and where it's going. Uh, and, and so it's important this morning to remember that we're in a, a first-century culture in which Jews and Gentiles had real problems. And Jesus' first disciples who were going to take the gospel into the whole world were Jews who weren't too excited about that. Now, uh, when they took the gospel to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, the question that would immediately arise was, did Gentiles need to convert to Judaism in order to be saved? Now, we know from reading the book of Acts and the New Testament letters that the answer to that is no. In this age between his two comings, Gentiles do not approach God through Judaism and certainly are not expected to convert. Now, we see this dramatized in Jesus' weird but wonderful encounter with a Canaanite woman. And so let's pick up the story in verse 21. It says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this verse is telling us that Jesus was, for the only time we know of for sure, fully outside of Jewish territory. He'd been among Gentiles before, but only within the borders of Israel where Jews and Gentiles live together. It's significant to the disciples. It's anticipating the time they'd be taking the gospel beyond Israel's borders to the whole world. Let's read the entire account of what happened before commenting on it, beginning in verse 22. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. As I said, weird. It stumbles people that Jesus talked to her this way. He referred to her as a dog. A lot of commentary space is dedicated to trying to explain that either Jesus was not really being harsh or that he was being harsh, but that's okay because after all, he's Jesus. Now, Jesus sees the opportunity of her coming to him to teach the disciples something about their upcoming mission and about the relationship of Gentiles to Israel in terms of the gospel. Think of Jesus' dialogue with the Canaanite woman as a dramatic representation of what the disciples needed to learn about taking the gospel beyond their borders. If we bear that in mind, thoughts of harshness will give way to a sense of wonder at just how perfect an illustration this is for the disciples. First of all, we see she was a woman of Canaan. By the first century, Gentiles weren't called Canaanites very much. Matthew's choice of the word is therefore quite deliberate. 
The Canaanites were the Gentiles that the Jews were supposed to have totally eradicated in their initial conquest of the promised land under Joshua. You might say they were extreme Gentiles. If Jews hated Gentiles, they really hated Canaanites. Her daughter was severely demon-possessed. Hers one is an extreme case. It was a worst-case scenario. She had heard about Jesus and his power over Satan, and she came seeking his mercy on her little girl. Notice how she first approached Jesus. It's the key to understanding this entire exchange. She approached him and said, O Lord, the son of David. She approached him as a Gentile seeking the covenant blessings that belong to the ethnic subjects of King David. This is how a Jew would approach uh, the one that they thought was their Messiah as the son of David, not how a Gentile would. You might say she approached him as a Gentile willing to convert to Judaism in order to appropriate God's blessings. And that's precisely why I believe Jesus said nothing to her. He's going to help her, but not until she understands that she's not a Jew, and further, she need have nothing to do with Judaism to get his help. We might put it like this, Jesus, not Judaism, is what's going to help her. She was persistent, and the disciples couldn't take it. They urged Jesus, send her away, presumably after having granted her request. And so they're saying, Jesus, you know, we just can't think. She's interrupting our Angry Birds marathon or whatever. And so, so just, would you just, we've seen you do it before, just heal her daughter from afar and get her off uh, out of our hair. Now, something important was happening. Something important is always happening if you're walking with the Lord. We just need to be more patient sometimes and let things unfold. How many, how many of you like to wait? I mean, anybody like a professional waiter, you know? Not waiter, but a, somebody who, who could wait for me in line. I could pay you to wait. Maybe now, now this, I'm on to something. I would be willing to get paid to wait. I'd spend all day at Walmart if somebody would pay me. You want me to wait? I'll wait with your groceries and bring them out to you. I'll even load your car if you want to pay me for it. But anyway, I was in Walmart the other day, which actually I like Walmart. I don't know about you. Everybody hates Walmart. I actually like Walmart. I, I have to admit, you know, there were 38 people in line and there were only two checkers open. That's fine. You know, they're trying to force you to go to self-check. I refuse to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm against that. Just I'm, I'm philosophically opposed to that. That's for something I'm not going to do unless they force me. But anyway, I would wait. But most of the time, we don't want to wait. And so the disciples, they just want to get ready. There's a big lesson coming that they need to learn. And, and many times, that's true of us as well. So Jesus said to them, but in her hearing, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus was sent to the Jews first. Through the Jews, God intended to bless all the other peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues on the earth. Israel was in the throes of rejecting Jesus, and the mission of the disciples in his absence would become to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. That's from Romans 1.16. And so Jesus said, I came to the Jews first, but when they rejected him, it became Jew first, then Gentiles. The Bible goes on to describe the time between Jesus' comings as the fullness of the Gentiles. It was critical that the disciples understand the relationship of Jews and Gentiles and of the relationship of Gentiles to Judaism. And so that's, what's, that's really what's going on in this exchange. Now, how much of this the Canaanite woman understood, we can't say. Probably none of it. 
But when she approached Jesus the second time, she did so very differently as a Gentile with no direct claim to God's promises to Israel. She didn't come back to him and say, oh, son of David, louder. She came and worshiped him saying, Lord, help me. Worship means she recognized him as God. She came only seeking his help as the creator. Would Jesus help her now? Verse 26. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now why wasn't he helping her? Well, the lesson wasn't complete. Even though the Jews would reject him and the gospel would go out to the Gentiles, God would not renege on his promises to Israel. There would still be a kingdom. The kingdom is represented by the children eating bread, meaning they were seated at a banqueting table feasting. The children represent the nation of Israel feasting in the future millennial kingdom. And and so, uh, you know, a lot of people today and throughout history have thought, well, you know, once the Jews rejected Jesus, God rejected them and he's through with them and he's only dealing with, uh, you know, the church. There is no more Israel, no more plan for Israel. But Jesus didn't say, hey, uh, I'm going to take the bread that used to belong to Israel and give it to other people and, and not have anything to do with them. He still says, oh, the children have bread. And the others outside of their relationship are only getting the crumbs. And, and so... We'll we'll develop this a little bit more in a minute. Dogs was a derogatory name Jews called Gentiles. When they said it, they used a specific word meaning mangy, wild, rabid dogs. If you know me at all, you know that I'm afraid of all dogs. All dogs. Tiny dogs, giant dogs, they scare me. Uh, And Pam always says, honey, they sense fear. And I say, yeah, absolutely, because I'm afraid. It doesn't do anybody any good to tell them that dogs sense fear because you're afraid. If, if, if I could not be afraid, I'd do it. Obviously, they sense it. And when we travel overseas, I'm really afraid of dogs because they just roam wild. We're in Honduras or the Philippines, some of these third world countries that are not as uh, you know, up to speed on things and dogs are out and stuff, and they always find me. And I know I'm going to be bit one of these times and have to have rabies treatment in the third world hospital. I just know it. It's, it's, it just kills me. And so that's the word that the Jews normally used for dogs. Now, Jesus referred to little pet household dogs, not the mangy scavengers. His specific choice of word offered hope, and the Canaanite woman seized on it. Verse 27, and she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Heartened by Jesus' comparison of Gentiles to household pets, she stated the obvious. Who hasn't fed their dog table scraps or sometimes the whole meal, depending on who the cook was? (laughs) Just, you know, it happens. Whoops, my plate fell on the ground. Oh, well. Um, Heartened by Jesus' comparison, she does this. And so the kingdom on earth... It's often represented by a feast, and in fact, there will be feasting, real feasting with real food and drink in the kingdom. Israel had seats at the table, so to speak, as God's chosen nation, here represented as the children. Gentiles feast thanks to Israel. As Gentiles, we owe the Jews a great debt of spiritual gratitude. In Romans 11, 
17 and 18, Paul the Apostle wrote and he said, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, what he's talking about there is this. The olive tree is a picture of the nation of Israel, and the wild olive tree is the church. We've been grafted into the promises of God thanks to Israel. Everything you and I have spiritually is rooted in the fact that God called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that out of the nation Israel, he brought Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And so for me, is it asking too much that a few Jewish guys could play Jesus every now and then? That he could look like a nondescript Jew rather than a, a, a male model uh, out of an English country home or something like that? It just, you know, let's show some respect. Paul puts it a bit more bluntly in a passage from Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's Israel's table. It's their feast. We've been invited to it. We share in its bounty, but not apart from them. So think of this Canaanite woman. She had been far off, but she was brought near by Jesus Christ. And so all of this, as you, you start to lock into this, you think, well, this is a really powerful illustration of the situation at the time and what the disciples were going to have to be dealing with, with this Jew-Gentile problem. It's a flawless illustration of exactly what would take place after Jesus returned to heaven even after the national rejection of Jesus, the gospel would go to the Jew first, but then to the Gentiles who would worship God and receive his blessings, but definitely not need to approach him through Judaism at all. On what basis would the Gentiles approach God and enjoy the full spiritual benefits of a relationship with him? It would be on the basis of faith alone. Verse 28, then Jesus answered and said to her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now it took a while for Jesus to get her to the point where she and the disciples could see that it was by faith alone that he was available to her. After Jesus ascended, the church would struggle mightily against Judaizers who went around teaching that Gentiles must convert to Judaism in order to be saved. And so the normal scenario in the first century, Paul the Apostle, for example, would go out and he would preach in a, he'd start in the Jewish synagogue to the Jew first, he'd get run out of there, and then he would set up shop somewhere else and start preaching to anybody who came, and especially Gentiles, and they were getting saved, and then these Judaizers would come and they would say, it's great that you're saved, but you're not really saved unless you also convert to Judaism or at least do certain things like get circumcised and eat certain foods and that kind of a thing. And this was huge, more than we realize, because it could have killed biblical Christianity in the first century had this taken hold. 
had, it, had this teaching, this false teaching taking hold that you can only be a Christian if you're also a Jew. It, it, it's a huge issue. We don't really struggle with that, do we? No, because it, we're centuries from it in the United States of America, but this was a critical thing. After Jesus ascended, the church would struggle with this. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul called these people dogs, not the little household pet variety either. Uh, He was dogged by these Judaizers and he called them dogs. Christians might think of themselves as whosoevers, but let's not forget to think of non-believers that way. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's Romans 10, 13 in a section where Paul is talking about uh, Israel. We most likely aren't going to encounter whosoevers who think that they must convert to Judaism in order to be saved. I, I guess you could, but the people that you work around for the most part, if you start sharing Christ with them, they're not going to say, well, I get what you're saying. Uh, I'm going to convert and become a Jew, and then I'll get saved. That, that's probably not a normal conversation. But people do have their own ideas about how to approach God. For example, a lot of people I've invited to church over the years have told me they needed to clean up their lives first, that they weren't ready to come to church. They think that they must approach God by their own good works, that that you can get yourself ready to stand in the presence of God. They're talking about reforming themselves, and while that might be a good thing for them and those around them, it cannot save them. You must be transformed from within by an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Like this Canaanite woman, you come as you are, acknowledging he is God and asking for mercy. That's how you come to Christ, not with some prerequisites that you have to meet. Other whosoevers might not realize it, but they're counting on what we would call universalism. They think everyone will be saved in the end, although they don't know what that means or where everyone is going. You can deduce this from some of the weird comments people make while delivering eulogies at funerals. They're always sure we will all be together in the end with the big guy in the sky. And, I'm, and it's because there's a sense of that has to be true, doesn't it? There has to be more than this, isn't there? Aren't we all gonna be together? And, and it's, it's a universalism, but it's a, it's a false hope in a universalism that they don't really understand. And so the lesson for us here is listen carefully to what whosoever's believe and be ready with the gospel, with the message that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now the remaining verses were to look compassionately upon the whosoever's around you. One Canaanite woman and her demon-possessed child could be an anomaly. Jesus therefore went deeper into Gentile territory and performed many miracles and one notable miracle that showed the extent to which the gospel would go out to the Gentiles between his two comings. Verse 29, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed and many others and they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maim made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus had healed Gentiles before. These were all Gentiles in Gentile territory, deep in their territory, and we know that that they were Gentiles because of the wording, they glorified the God of Israel. 
you'd never describe Jews that way. You'd never say of a Jew, he glorified the God of Israel because God is his God. So these are all Gentiles in deep in Gentile territory. To the Jew first, then to the Gentiles was the lesson for the disciples. Now Jesus is reemphasizing that Gentiles would receive all the spiritual blessings of heaven by faith without converting. And again, you and I sit here and we think, we don't care about this. We're not in any danger of converting to Judaism, but we wouldn't be sitting here today if this issue wasn't resolved in the first century by the disciples hanging on against this false teaching. It was a lesson that was hard for these Jewish boys. Peter, for example, would initially balk at taking the gospel to the Gentiles, and even after God mightily used him Among the Gentiles, he would later revert back to eating separately from them, and he would need a public rebuke from the Apostle Paul in order to get his mind uh, around that. Verse 32, now Jesus called his disciples to himself, and he said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Compassion is one of the emotions of Jesus most mentioned in the Bible. Every time Jesus is spoken of, you know, you're thinking of him having compassion. If it was great in him, it must be great in us by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Verse 33, then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in this wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Now, I'm not going to criticize these guys. Sure, it seems as though they ought to have more faith by now. They'd been in a similar situation before with an even larger crowd and even fewer resources. I only know that in my life there are often little nuances that make similar situations different enough for me to wonder what God is up to and how he's going to work. And so verse 34, Jesus said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground And he took the seven loaves and the fish and he gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat and came to the region of Magdala. Now earlier Jesus had fed 5,000, not counting women and children. One thing I can point out about both the feeding miracles Each time the leftovers were greater than what they started with originally. I don't understand heavenly math. I'm with George Bush. It's like fuzzy math to me. Remember the fuzzy math thing when Al Gore? I just know that if I give, I get a lot more in return. Now, I'm not drifting into a health and wealth teaching. What I get in return isn't usually in the same currency. In other words, if I give something physical like money, I likely receive something intangible that is spiritual. We should never give in order to get something, but we won't get anything if we don't give. By definition, the Christian life must involve sacrifice. After all, Christ came into the world to give his life a ransom for many. How can I be a Christian, which means Christ-like, if I do not sacrifice? I, it, it doesn't make sense. Now, in these two episodes, you have an illustration, you have a representation of the mission of the disciples to the Gentiles after Jesus' ascension. 
And you see this in, in the Apostle Paul beautifully. As I mentioned earlier, he would go into a town to the Jew first. He would go into their synagogue and preach the risen Christ, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth was their Messiah. He'd be kicked out of the synagogue, unwelcome there by uh, certain Jews, and then the gospel would go to the Gentiles of that city. And the Gentiles would experience full salvation, full blessing, the filling of the Holy Spirit without having to convert to Judaism or have anything to do with Judaism. All they were told to do was not offend Jews when they were around them. And, And as simple as that is to us, it was absolutely crazy for these guys to think about that having grown up in the Jewish tradition and having centuries of mosaic law leading up to that time Uh, and today people still have struggles with this and I said before that probably we're not going to have too much trouble with people saying they want to convert to Judaism before they get saved but I know plenty of Christians who've been saved for a long time who are now dabbling in Judaism and who are rediscovering their Jewish roots and uh, are no longer going to church on Sunday because now they're observing the Sabbath. And, and I don't even have a problem with that until they cross the line and say that that's what you and I have to do as well. And so this is a problem that just, it's never gonna go away. It's not as prevalent in our experience as it was. And as I said, it could have derailed the entire message of the gospel. Now, as we close, on a purely human level, lurking behind these verses is the reality of poor health and other terrible sufferings as we await the return of the Lord. We had a woman whose daughter was severely demon-possessed and then a litany of terrible things that were wrong with these Gentiles. How are we to approach our sufferings while we are carrying out the Great Commission? Samuel Rutherford once said, it is faith's work to claim loving kindness out of all the roughest strokes of God. I like that quote. I'd modify it only to say that many of our sufferings, though certainly permitted by God, are not his strokes, but are the result of living in a fallen world where the devil remains on the loose. Still, it can be, as the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 71, good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes. God uses what comes into our life in order to teach us and train us and disciple us. Charles Spurgeon said, let us accept the worst that scripture gives us and still find in it an argument for hope. We can do this because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and because of the blessed hope of the Lord's imminent return. Let's pray together.